Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest is Michael Stevens, a senior research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and an associate fellow at RUSI. His work focuses on the politics and security of the Middle East and UK security policy. He's co-edited with Christopher Phillips, What Next for Britain in the Middle East? Security, Trade and Foreign Policy after Brexit. It's published by I.B. Torres, and it's a comprehensive, wide-reaching, and very readable analysis. I recommend it highly. The book is the subject of our conversation today. Mike, delighted to have you back in the podcast. Great to be back. The first question, why this book and why now? That's a really good question to ask. I think, first and foremost, nobody's looked at this topic for 20 years, and Chris Phillips and I thought about this on our way up Mount Lebanon, I think it was back in 2018, that, you know, this single moment in British foreign policy, probably the most important moment in British foreign policy since the end of World War II had happened. It had global implications. And there is a huge conversation about Britain and its place in the world. But the weird thing is, is that nobody had really asked about the Middle East and Britain, an area which Britain had had very long historical ties to, has deep roots within, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is debatable, but maintains a set of quite structured permanent interests. And we realised that there's just a massive gap in the literature. People talk about it maybe as an afterthought with regards to, you know, the Asia-Pacific tilt. And so we thought, no, this is the right time to ask this question. You know, what next for this region? There are 350 million people and growing in the region. There's an awful lot of economic interest in the area. Security, of course, as we know, Britain has fought a number of wars since 1990 in the region and yet nobody wants to talk about it because everybody wants to talk about China and they want to talk about the drift towards East Asia and India. Yeah, so, you know, this region, whether we like it or not, is is an important region for us. And the thing about the timing, the reason it's come out now is really because we wanted this book to have longevity. And the truth was that the Brexit process took way longer than anybody had imagined. We didn't actually leave the EU properly with a deal until the beginning of 2020. And then within six weeks, we'd been hit by the most serious uh, event um, in the 21st century, which was the global pandemic. Uh, We then had to take that into account. And by the time we'd taken that into account, uh, Donald Trump had lost the election. And also, you know, whilst there are very, very similar traits in some ways in US foreign policy between Obama, Trump and Biden, the, the way in which it's handled is quite different and we needed to reflect that. So the reason it's come out now is really so that we've had the space and the time to reflect on those events, make sure that they're in the book, that it's relevant to the reader today and it will be relevant in five years. And I think it's future-proofed it pretty well. I think that this book will be um, a pretty good guide for anybody wanting to understand the UK and the Middle East in five, even 10 years' time. You cover an awful lot of territory, and I don't think we'll get through it all today, so I'm going to have to have you back again. But but let's start with one of the chapters you contributed about the special relationship between the US and the UK and how that plays out in MENA. Mm. I mean, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it, that 
we talk about leaving the European Union, and yet the most important chapter in terms of our foreign relations in the Middle East is with the United States. And it will probably be that way for some time to come. You know, I just don't think it was possible to write a book about the UK in the Middle East region without thinking about what the US is doing or what it's not doing. And it's quite clear that with the exception of some small areas of policy influence, maybe the relationship with the state of Israel, that the US is is far less interested in the Middle East than it used to be. It doesn't regard the debates in the region as particularly important to its sense of identity, its sense of global power, its sense of prosperity. We only have to see, and I know Afghanistan's not in the Middle East, but it's the same kind of conception, it's the same mindset that approached Afghanistan, right? Which was that oh, we, we, we want out. What have we done? We've spent all this money. What are we getting from it? Oh, there's a bunch of, bunch of guys, you know, running around with these ideologies we don't want to deal with. Let's get out. And to be perfectly honest, I think that feeling is replicated in Iraq. I think it's replicated in Syria. Look at how the US hasn't lifted a finger to help in Lebanon, you know, as the country has gone into complete meltdown. And I think that there is a, a perception, at least, that yes, the US has some interests there. It has some interest in the stability of, of oil prices, its friends in the Gulf, and not seeing ISIS running rampant across the region. But apart from that, you know, it's difficult to understand what very, very core interests the US holds. Clearly, you know, they still have a, a, an issue with Iran, which is, is proving to be difficult to solve. But let, let, let's just take a basic metric, Bill. The Saudis in the year 2000 were exporting the vast amount of their oil to the United States. I think it was about 80%. That's now China. And the barrels per day exports to the United States are less than a million a day. Uh, it's just the, the world has changed. U.S. interests in the region have changed. You know, it, it's primarily security focused. It's not even really prosperity focused anymore. And those security questions are just frankly less important than they were 20 years ago. There is no more war on terror. It doesn't exist. So the truth is this, that, you know, the U.S. has the luxury of, of 3,000 miles of water, right, that insulates it from the region, right? The closest country, I think, is probably Morocco. And that's a long way away. We don't have that luxury. The Europeans in general don't have that luxury. So we need to think really hard about the fact that the U.S. is less engaged, but can Britain and France and Germany just go careering into the region and secure it from its own you know, insecurities and problems? And the answer is no, they can't. They need the US there. If the US isn't there, then options are severely limited. So under what context will we expect to see a continued US presence? How should the UK, which defines the US as its closest allies, react to that? What contingencies should it build? And, uh, you know, I, I, I make a strong case for absolutely on some issues we should be toe to toe with the Americans, that being primarily security. But on trade, no, the Americans are a competitor and we should we should uh, absolutely see them as a competitor in the trade arena and try and get ahead of them. And if it comes to pass that they take a very sort of Trumpian view towards the Iranians, then the Europeans are probably our closer allies. So we need to hedge. We need to be flexible. We need to have other allies as well as the United States, whilst understanding that they're still the most important power in the world, you know, that the Chinese haven't fully taken over. And not only that, with the with respect to the Chinese, 
They're not looking for a role in the Middle East that the US held 20 years ago. They just don't want that type of of, of um, footprint. So there's going to be a bit of a space. There's going to be more competition. The US isn't going to lead from the front in the way that it did before. And for a middle power like the UK, that means big, big questions, and they have to be answered fairly quickly. So that's why I took that chapter on. Yeah, and uh, and I think you make the point, too, that uh, you cannot overplay the special relationship. I mean, I'm a Canadian and, you know, the Americans tell us that, you know, we're their bestest friends and, and Americans have lots of, of, of bestest friends or have had lots of bestest friends. So there, there needs to be pragmatism on that one, too, doesn't there? Absolutely. You know, and, and this idea that, you know, somehow the U.S. is just not relevant. It's not true. It, it is massively relevant, right? If if you want to run a carrier group anywhere near the Gulf, the U.S. has to be involved. The, the French tried and failed to build an alternative security mission in the Gulf that was effectively still U.S. run. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. You know, I've been to Canada many times and, and had the pleasure of working in Ottawa and everything is done with relevance to the United States first. And and with all you know, due respect to, to France, which is a very active power, and, and the Germans are quite active too, and even Russia, you know, nothing nothing really gets going without the US. And I think the the one example of this is probably Syria, right? The what the reason Syria has gone the way it's gone is because the Americans have allowed it to go that way. If the Americans wanted to solve Syria, they would have done. And and we know that they would have done because there was one conflict with the Russians in eastern Syria uh, two, three years ago, and the Russians got absolutely wiped out. <laughs> and the Americans made it very clear that you won't go past this line. So when the US wants to deploy every asset it has, it, it's very, very powerful still. And, and we have to understand that. We have to not be too quick to say this is game over. But look, decline doesn't happen overnight. It, it, it's a slow sort of process in which there are ups and downs and and that's how we have to adjust to it what the reality of the situation is us should be the first thing that we think about but it's not the only thing and it should definitely not be the case that because the us is doing one thing we should 100% do that as well uh that would not be in, in british interest and i think what the chapter does is outline exactly where and when we should ally and where and when we should compete a great loss was the passing of Rosemary Hollis, uh, to whom the book is dedicated. Hers is the opening chapter, an overview of the UK and MENA, which she concludes with a, a quintessentially Hollis summing up. Uh, I'm going to quote the, the whole sentence because it's um, it's so appropriate. If there's a single thread running through Britain's dealings with the Middle East over the decades, it is that Her Majesty's government has tried consistently to find a way to manage its relations with the numerous dictatorial regimes and power brokers in the region, while adhering to the norms it likes to espouse, without much success. Mm. Yep, I mean, it's, that's Rosie. She's pretty honest and pretty straight. <laughs> I Look, I, you know, this book is her legacy. That's what we wanted. And um, it's, it, it, it was a sad time when, you know, I, I got the last edit back from her and she was... She was the one author who I never had to prompt to to send in a, a a new edit or anything like that, and and she was so invested in this project, and she knew when we did the opening roundtable to assess the ideas of the book that this was kind of the baton 
that she had held going to the next generation. And she was proud of that. And and we made it known to her that, that this book is is because of her, actually. And, and we were really, really keen uh, to have her write the introduction. She was the authority. And, you know, she has that historical legacy. She has that body of work that we all looked up to. You know, when I was coming up in the field, Rosemary was the person that you, you looked up to in any round table. So... To me, it was very, very important that we made it known that this was this was part of her legacy uh, and that we were just continuing what she started, really. We've taken it in a slightly different direction from what Ro- Rosie might take, but um, I think her her understanding of, of our relationship with particularly the kingdoms across the region is a very... It, it's a bit jaded by processes like the Iraq War and uh, the mistakes that we've made over the last 30 years, but... It's historically accurate, and um, there was no one better, really, to write that chapter. Mm. Well said. The issue um, that James Lynch in his chapter calls values, and indeed it's, it, it's uh, titled values, that is uh, governance and human rights is what he's talking about there, is that that always takes a backseat to trade and security. Is that just simply real politics? And uh, that's always going to be the case, or is there any idea that we should be advancing more of the issue of governance and, and human rights? This is a really tough point, isn't it? And it gets to the core of the book. Originally, the book was going to be called Principles or Pragmatism. And we changed it because we did think that it was maybe a bit black and white to suggest that that dealing with a region like the Middle East is just a battle between principles and, and being pragmatic. Clearly, James's chapter is the embodiment of that debate, right? Um, you know, I think it's it's not controversial to say that we had a lot of hope in young leaders in the Middle East to reform in a particular way. They did reform, but they didn't reform in the ways that we liked. And if anything, actually, some of these states have used technology to become more authoritarian and more efficient at being authoritarian. And that's a real difficult debate for a country like the UK. And ultimately, James is right. Mostly values take a back seat. But there are instances in which I think they don't take a back seat. And, in, and you know, like it or not, the, the way in which a democratic system is organised is that politicians are responsible to their constituents. And when Jamal Khashoggi was killed, Many constituents wrote to MPs, wrote to congressmen and complained and were outraged. And something had to be done because that is our system. It, it, you know, ultimately, if you've got thousands of angry people petitioning backbenchers, cabinet ministers in any democratic country, they have to respond. And, and, and we did. I think it's fair to say that, you know, Mohammed bin Salman has not traveled uh, to the US or to the UK on a state visit since uh, since 2018. So there are consequences. It's not just the case that you blindly sell weapons to the Gulf monarchs and, and say that everything's fine. I mean, look at the pressure on, I think it's, isn't it David Beckham now uh, to say something about the Qatar World Cup? Gary Neville uh, of, of Manchester United, who seems to have political opinions on everything these days, made a very interesting point, which is that actually he thinks that the Newcastle takeover is a good thing because if you shine the spotlight hard on these countries, they have to change. He's probably right. You know, I mean, you know, you and I have followed the issue of human rights 
in the golf for a long time. It's broadly been a pretty negative story, but there have been improvements since you and I started in this game. You know, there have been. I remember following your work and the fact that they had to show you a prison that looked nice. I mean, 20 years before you arrived in, in, in Bahrain, they didn't care what people thought about what their prisons looked like. So it's, it's, it's tiny wins. And I think that's where I would say the reason we didn't go with the principles or pragmatism debate is because I just don't think it's black and white. And I think that, yes, we have business interests in the region. There's, I think, 300,000 British people living in the Gulf sending tax-free remittances back. You'd be chopping off your arm if if you decided that human rights were the only metric to deal with the Gulf states. But it is a difficult one. And, and James rightly points out that when the rubber meets the road, the, the money comes first and it's uncomfortable. And what we say in the book is that that is likely to continue. And it, it is uncomfortable. You and I both knew Jamal. And, and it's not been a fun three years since he passed away. But we know also that the systemic kind of relationship between the UK and these areas is is set in stone and, and held by some very, you know, powerful interests. And uh, it would be it would be unwise to suddenly donkey kick, you know, because you, there are things you didn't like in the world. So we, we try and come up and, and James is brilliant at this, at looking at exactly when the personalities in British politics balanced those equations out and when they came down on the business side and then when they came down on the human rights side. And my hope is that people going forward, at least policymakers, will understand that this is not an either or issue. You can do both. It's not going to be satisfactory, but that that is dealing with the region. Palestine and Israel. A terrific chapter for me in black with some memorable quotes. One from John Jenkins, a former UK consul general in Jerusalem, describing Foreign Office approaches as, quote, a succession of fig leaves covering the absence of policy. Another, an unnamed official on the answer to the perennial question of what to do about the conflict, quote, to which there is no answer. There's never an answer. They never want to say boo to Israel. That's it in a nutshell, isn't it, Mike? It's funny, isn't it? Because right now we have probably a stronger relationship with Israel than we've had in many years. Um... I think that the one thing that maybe we should have asked Ian to write more about, and Ian's chapter was one of the first chapters that I got in and I think I did the least work on because it just, it was so good when it arrived. I mean, he's such a great scholar. And, you know, the, the fact that domestic politics in the UK has, has really become muddled. Corbyn's position on anti-Semitism, the Conservative Party has now almost become atavistically pro-Israel when it wasn't the case actually before, um, Conservative Party was a bit more balanced between traditional Arabists and and sort of the the you know the kind of Michael Gove pro Israel neocon crowd. Now I would say it's 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 very firmly in the pro Israel camp. Labour has become very firmly in the pro Palestinian camp, and th- and that's not really you know the Israel Palestine issue is complex, and it, and it's not really a left or a right issue. And and sadly I think we've inherited a little bit of the U.S. disease on this. And I think maybe we, we should have asked Ian to take a look at that a bit closer. But in terms of the sort of the foreign policy questions, I mean, it's 100% right. I mean, we, we've constantly tried to look for little things to improve the situation all the while watching it deteriorate for 70 years. I mean, I can't recall a time in which I've been in a discussion about Israel and Palestine in the Foreign Office where people say it's getting better. I mean, it, it, just no one says that, right? It's always 
various degrees of the situation is getting worse. What can we do to ameliorate the problem a little bit? And it's difficult because ultimately, I think, you know, the situation we're in now, the Israeli government holds most of the cards. We don't hold many of them. I think in a weird way, and this is, this is a strange comparison, but I think you'll understand what I'm getting at. We've taken almost an Emirati approach, which is that we've just looked at Israel as this kind of one area in the region that we can really do proper business with, where we can have companies interacting with companies, we can do technological transfer, we can get all these interesting, you know, Israel does some things extremely well. And I think we've identified what the Emiratis have, which is that there's a lot of benefit in dealing with those bits of the Israeli system. The bad bits of the Israeli system, again, I think we've probably taken a bit of a UAE approach, which is we don't like it, but what are you going to do? And I think the problem, of course, is the historical legacy argument as well, which just it always hamstrings the British because effectively we were responsible for the problem in the first place. And it then goes back to the bigger question, which Ian touches on, which is the position of the United States. And, and actually, the US doesn't seem to want to get too involved at the moment. So I think I think we're pretty stuck. And uh, it is it is going to be more of those fig leaves, sadly. I wanted to ask you about the Gulf, a, a chapter that you co-wrote with your Rusi colleague, Tobias Bork. The relationship that the UK has with the Gulf states, is it the most important one, the one that can bring the most benefit to the UK? And if so, how do you see that unfolding in the uh, decades to come? It's the most important, the most lucrative, the most problematic, uh, the most challenging. The thing about the Gulf that makes it challenging is that it is, you know, the, the, the Brits are very good at identifying a military problem in the region and dealing with it like ISIS. Now, ISIS was a threat, it was awful, but we defeated them because it was easy, kind of, once we knew where they were. The Gulf, there is no friend, there is no enemy. Everybody's kind of a rival with themselves. You know, Qatar is at war with its neighbours pretty much, and then it's not at war with its neighbours, and then Saudi and the UAE who ganged up on Qatar are rivals. Different approaches towards Iran, different approaches towards each other. The Saudis are taking business measures which directly hurt Dubai. The Omanis don't want to be involved in any of that. And yet they're our historically closest ally. And you're just sitting there going, for God's sake, do we even have a regional perspective on this? We don't. There's no, there's no Gulf perspective on anything. Here's where it gets complicated. is because the financial relationships with the UK are so strong and so intimate, as well as the kind of elite, elite relationships, the royal relationships that we kind of have to deal with this stuff. And, and you know, where I head with in the chapter, and Tobias and I both head with, is we, we make some pretty strong recommendations, which is, you know, they, the Gulf states want reassurance constantly on their security issues, on the threats that face them. But, but the truth is they've got to work out those problems themselves. There's no way that the UK or the US can step in and provide the type of security that they're looking for when they can't even agree what that security challenge is. And half the time, it's each other. I mean, and, and when they're doing things like saying that each other's television station is a national security threat, I mean, this is ridiculous, right? We're there to secure the Gulf from external attack, to make sure that the hydrocarbons get out, to make sure that the flows of income, trade, prosperity move in, the World Cup is coming. All these brilliant things are happening. Dubai Expo 2020. You know, what we can't have is, is this internecine bickering that, that, that affects policy. And so I think, 
you know, the Gulf states have, have come out of that phase, hopefully in a little bit more of a sort of chastened position where they're not trying to socially engineer other parts of the region. They're less likely to rival each other in Libya, in Yemen, in, I don't know, name your country, Egypt. And they're actually starting to be a bit more constructive in the way that they approach uh, world events. So I, I think that's good. I think it's great that they had a climate change conference this week. They're starting to talk about the things that are really important to the world. So I think things are headed actually in the right direction. And um the UK just needs to keep pushing along that line. You know, let's keep doing the things that we're doing. Let's keep pushing them along those lines, reforming particularly the hydrocarbon sector. All the, all the negatives of MBS are, are in some ways outweighed by the fact that he's the only Saudi royal that's actually really seriously looked at this challenge and tried to take it on. Because ultimately, if they don't do that by 2050, 60, they're in real trouble. We also know that climate change is, is destroying Kuwait at the moment. There was a great piece in the BBC about how temperatures in Kuwait are regularly above 50 degrees C. We can help with that. And what Tobias and I say is that the power of our ideas, our relationships at the elite to elite level, the fact that we, you know, have we returned to east of Suez? Probably not. But we do have these relationships which aren't going away. We can we can really help in that arena. What we then go on to say is is the extension of the um, the, the the James Lynch debate, which is that I, I don't think we're going to get the reforms that we'd like to see. You know, some of these democratic reforms or liberalizing reforms aren't going to come. It's pick and choosing your battles when you can get them. But being pragmatic, you know, again, it would be very very foolish to break off relationships with these states. But at the same time, it would also be very, very foolish to get sucked into every problem that they bring up. There are other things to worry about now. We've got to get them focusing on the big things. And I think that's where the chapter leads. Final question, uh, Mike. If you're advising uh, the recently appointed Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, on MENA and the UK relations, what are the top lines you'd be briefing her on? Uh, you mentioned MBS a couple of times. How would you, for example, advise her on uh, dealing with Mohammed bin Salman? Well, I think, you know, broadly speaking, the, the Foreign Office has taken the view that he's too important um, to fail. And I think from that perspective, everything else kind of flows, right? Which is that this guy doesn't make it work, then then there's not really much else out there. Now, we can debate why that is, and it's probably because he got rid of everybody else. But but the truth is, there are some very capable Saudis. And you speak to people in Aramco, you speak to people in the PIF. You know, if the direction is right, they can start to move the kingdom in the right way. So it's engagement. Do I think that MBS would be granted an audience with the Queen within the next decade? No. Do I think he should? No. Do I think that his foreign minister, who is a very bright man, should be coming to the UK and we should be going to see him? Absolutely. Um, do I think that we should be talking to Saudi Arabia about its alliance structures in the region and seeing how we can maybe cool the tensions down? Yes, I do. So there's many, many things to talk about. But I think, you know, it goes back to what I was saying, broadly speaking, that we have big policy ideas that we should be very, very unapologetic for, Right. Climate change, I think, being the most important, but, you know, there's also the kind of global prosperity idea. There's also, you know, trying to have countries following the rules in the international system. And I think that we need to make sure that those conversations are continuously had. And um, the Foreign Office is kind of doing that. You know, I think Liz Truss already knows this. My, my view is that 
we should take a very, very constructive approach to seeing these countries as partners that can walk alongside us rather than us lecturing them about what to do. However, I think after the pandemic and we're coming out of the pandemic, I think, we, we do need to be very honest with these countries and just say, listen, you know, it is in your best interest to change now. Everything is changing and you've got to change with it. And holding on to these anachronistic governance structures and energy and economy structures is going, is going to finish you off. Now, again, Vision 2030 has been in place for six years now. But that needs to work, you know, the, but it's also the UAE, it's also Qatar, it's also Oman, Bahrain, Kuwait, they, they've all got to be involved in this discussion, because they're all part of the solution as well as they're part of the problem. And I think that's where we should be headed with our discussions. I actually think that we should relegate national security questions to second or third. And I think we should be talking about global prosperity and global climate issues as, as number one. And I think there these countries really can make a difference if they want. So things need to change now. And and let's be honest, and I, and I had this conversation with senior officials um, in the Gulf that, you know, 10 years ago, we were kind of the same in the UK. You know, people didn't sort of recycle, you know, without thinking about it. We weren't that, we were concerned about climate change, but we weren't changing the cars that we bought as a result of it. Now everybody's changing their lifestyles as a result of this. This is where we've got to lead from the front. We've got to push for more change. I think COP26 is a good moment for that. But, um, you know, let's keep it going. And that's what I think Liz needs to do is to keep that debate front and centre. We've talked about the security issues. We've talked about the governance issues in this interview for, for extensively. Yes, they're all there. But this is now a global conversation. So if Britain's going to lead on anything in the world, it's got to be this. And... You know, we, we can't play the role of this colonial power from 100 years ago because we're not that. But what we can do is try and lead by example. I think that's a good place to start. Well, Mike, I think we'll have to stop it there. Uh, <laughs> the book is, 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 is really fascinating. I congratulate you on it. Uh, it it's, a, it's a hugely big contribution uh, to the MENA region. It's great to be part of this project. and It's great to speak to you again. Thanks very much, Bill. I hope you've enjoyed this week's Arab Digest podcast, and thanks for listening. My guest today was Michael Stevens, who's credited with Christopher Phillips' What Next for Britain in the Middle East, published by I.B. Taurus. I recommend it highly. Arab Digest also publishes a newsletter featuring some of the very best MENA analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the Arab Digest newsletter, simply go to arabdigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we are offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees, and subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.